Joshua chapter 12, it's going to go quickly. Beginning in verse 1, these are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun, that means the east, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. One king was Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites, and the eastern Jordan plain from the sea of Kinneroth, or Kinneroth, as far as the road to Bet-Jeshimot, and southward along the slopes of Pisgah, the other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Edri, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salka, over all Bashan, and as far as the border of the Gezerites and the Makathites, and over half of Gilead, to the border of Sehon, king of Heshbon, these Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Helak and the ascent to Sair, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the king of Jericho, one, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one, the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Ebron, one, the king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Getzer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Ormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Machedah, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Ether, one. The king of Aphek, one, the king of Lasharon, one, the king of Madon, one, the king of Hatzor, one, the king of Shimron, Miron, one, the king of Akshvath, one, the king of Tanakh, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, one, the king of Jokaniam in Carmel, one, the king of Dor on the heights of Dor, one, the king of the, of the people of Gilgal, one, the king of Tirzah, one, all the kings, 31. In chapter 11, we read about the conquered areas in verses 16 through 26. 
Now we have a list of the conquered kings, 33 in all. The list will begin with those kings who were conquered on the east side of the Jordan. Sihon and Og, those kings were conquered under the leadership of Moses in verses 1 through 8. Also, we know this from Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 35. Sixteen kings are mentioned for the defeated territories in the southern campaign. That's Joshua 12, verses 9 through 16. Fifteen kings in the northern campaign, verses 17 through 24. In short, Joshua, remember, as we literally make our way through the text just very quickly, they enter the land in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then all the way through chapter 5. Joshua's obeyed the commission of God, canvassed the land, crossed the Jordan. There was a time of spiritual rededication. In large part, the people of the land have been conquered. They've experienced victory at Jericho in chapter 6. They had a setback and defeat at Ai and then a victory. They have endured the deception of the Gibeonites, the destruction of the Amorite coalition in chapter 10. In chapter 11, we saw this last ditch effort of a coalition of kings desperately trying to hold on to the land. One of the things that I want to just remind you of is that Joshua and the children of Israel were called to inherit the land. This word inheritance is going to be really, really important. Not just in the past, in the present, but all the rest of the book of Joshua. The word inheritance is going to appear 50 times in the next nine chapters. That's chapters 13 through 21. Wearsby points out that the Jews inherited their land. They didn't win their land as spoils of battle or purchase their land in business transaction. The Lord was the sole owner of the land and that he was determined to lease the land to them. The land was not to be bought or sold permanently since, quote, the land is mine and you are aliens and my tenants. It says in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, the children of Israel were renters and God was their landlord. Your life has been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You thought that your life used to belong to you, but the Bible says your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchased you with his blood. He purchased you out of the marketplace of sin. Soon Joshua is going to be assigned the task of, of, of partitioning the land to the tribes. The rent that was required was Israel's worship of God and obedience to the law, Wearsby writes. God promised to bless them and make peace with their neighbors. In other words, the rent that they would pay in occupying this land 
was to worship the Lord and then to obey the Lord. So the chapter might seem like I showed you the little video, like a boring list of kings, dead kings, forgotten kings. But for the dedicated of Israel, this was a record of victory. This was a record of a series of glorious victories over hard-fought battles. This was a record of God's faithfulness. You know, my wife uh, has a pink ribbon license plate. She has pink t-shirts. She has pink ribbon jewelry. Why do you suppose she has all of that stuff? Anybody know? Huh? It is victory. She fought a battle with cancer. Breast cancer. The t-shirt. The license plate. The jewelry. All are a constant reminder to her of God's faithfulness in her life. And so that when she's wearing a, a pink ribbon or, or a piece of jewelry or a t-shirt or someone notices the license plate, there are other women who are cancer survivors and breast cancer survivors, and it gives them an opportunity, and particularly for her, to give an opportunity to testify concerning the faithfulness of God in the presence of her life and his faithfulness in healing her and restoring her. What's interesting to me is I've never seen Joshua's list of vanquished kings on anyone's favorite Bible list. You probably haven't either. You may have gotten a little Bible promise book. You may have gotten a, a, a devotional where every morning you wake up and you read a passage of scripture and you meditate and you reflect on the, on the scripture. But no one ever has put, to my knowledge, Joshua chapter 12 into a devotional book or into a Bible promise book. No one has ever said to me ever in the 40 plus years of me being a Christian, I've, I've said, hey, what's your favorite verse? Or do you have a life verse? No one has ever said to me, why, it's the list in Joshua chapter 12. But for anyone, for anyone who's ever entered into spiritual warfare, anyone who's ever had to battle with disease, anyone who's ever had to battle with Satan or battle with their flesh or battle with, with people or battle with cancer or battle with physical illness or battle with emotional distress or battle with financial ruin or battle through a failed relationship and experienced moments of victory and the faithfulness of God and a willingness to sing a song of victory and praise, that's what this chapter really is all about. As a matter of fact, it begins with victory on the east side. Look what it says in verse 1. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon on the eastern Plains, what I want you to do is, Ben, if you're up there, if anybody's up there, put the map up there. 
This is the map of the partition of the tribes. And you notice all the way to the top on the east side, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the geography, if you look at the little pool in the north, that's the Sea of Galilee. You see a little line running from north to the south into the Dead Sea. All of the land that is on the eastern side is being discussed of the Jordan Plain. Now, I think what I would would like, James, is for you to put the other map up. Yeah, that one. You see the Hittites to the north and the Ammonites in the middle and the Moabites. But again, you can still see the, the designation. You see the little land lock? That's the Sea of Galilee, or in the ancient world, it was known as Kinneroth. Kinneroth, or Kinneroth, is the Hebrew word for harp. And you'll notice that from a bird's eye view, the lake looks like a harp. Now, it says one king was Sichon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, ruled half of Gilead from Eror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of the river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is on the border of the Ammonites. So you can see the Hittites to the north, you see the Ammonites in the middle, you see the Moabites to the south, He's talking about from the middle of the river, even as far as Jabbok, and then the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Kinnereth. So look at the lake and then look east, which is going to be to your right. West is going to be to your left on that map. And so you can see the Sea of Araba, which is the Salt Sea. It was the ancient word for Araba. It was called the Salt Sea, but also we call it the Dead Sea. The road to Beth Jeshimoth, southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king was Og, the king of Bashan, and his territory, who was by the remnant who was uh, of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt in Azeroth and Edri, and, and reigned over Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, if you go Kineroth and you see the lake above it. If you keep going north where you see the word Hittites, right above that is going to be where Mount Hermon would be. We're going to see it on the other map in just a moment. Reigned over Mount Hermon, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Gishurites, the Machathites, half of Gilead to the border of Sichon, of Heshbon. And note this in verse 6. This is maybe the important part. These Moses, the servant of the Lord and the children of Israel, had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. All Bible students have to have at least a little passing understanding of Middle Eastern geography. In verse 6... These territories are the borderlands east of the Jordan. What's pointing out is there's a, there's a pause in the story. And in the pause of the story, the writer, Joshua, is once again recounting of what Moses did before they entered in the land. At the last part of what God did through Joshua conquering the rest of the land. So the territory stretched from the Arnon Gorge in the south all the way to Mount Hermon in the north. So the territory incorporated and included the eastern plain of what was called the Adaba, or the eastern side of the Jordan. Sihon, in verse 2, was the Amorite king 
who reigned in Heshbon, who controlled a large part of the territory. This information is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 32. The Amorites occupied the area north of the river Arnon, which flowed into the Dead Sea, just north of the midpoint. So if you have a Bible map in your mind or in your, the back of your Bible or when we put it back up, if you look at the Dead Sea, if you go about 24 miles um, to the north, you're going to see where the Arnon River from the Jordan flows into the Jordan. And so Jabok is a tributary also of the Jordan flowing into the Jordan, which will eventually float into the Dead Sea. The name of the king of that territory was called Sihon, which is an ancient word that means tempestuous. Some of you know what that word means. Others of you do not know what the word means, so I'll define it. Tempestuous is a word that describes the ill effects of weather. That when things are blowing a certain way or going good or going bad, that's what the meaning of the word is. Now, in verses 4 and 5, Og was the Rephite king who was also conquered by Moses. Og reigned in Ashtoreth and Edrith. His kingdom stretched across a large portion of the territory Again, east of the Jordan River, it's found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 33 through, through 35. The name Og means round. And I think it means round not just in the sense of a circle, but like you would describe a portly gentleman who's sort of round around the middle. Now, according to Numbers chapter 21, Israel took some 60 cities from Og. And the news of Og's destruction spread to Rahab and the Gibeonites. And so even though this may not seem like a big deal to you, but when these territories were conquered, when the children of Israel were on the east side of the river, it shook up the Middle East and it created and generated terror into the people who were occupying the city of Jericho and also the Gibeonites who deceived the children of Israel into forming an alliance. In verse 6, you'll notice that Moses is called the servant of the Lord, not just once, but twice in the text. And I think that the reason why is because that's the emphasis. Moses is doing this on behalf of God. He is the servant of the Lord. He becomes a type and a picture of Jesus later on. And remember what I've talked with you about when we were studying Joshua in his Old Testament appearances in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that Joshua was Moses' servant before he was Moses' successor. So in this conquest, Moses is acting on behalf of the Lord, and that land is going to be given to the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So now we can put up the second um, map. This is going to be the territories that are going to be assigned to the children of Israel. But if you look at the map on the wall, you'll notice all the way to the top, you'll see all of that sort of green land 
and you'll see the word Manasseh. And then you see the word Gad sort of sandwiched in between um, on, the, on the north and then in the middle and then Reuben to the south. Now, all of this is the eastern territories east of the Jordan River in the area that you and I think of as in the north Syria and in the south Jordan. They want this land. And when Moses conquered this land, those tribes said, we want this land as our inheritance. We want to be on the east side of the river. Now, this is going to cause huge problems for them in the future. And again, they agreed that they wanted this land, and Moses graciously agreed to give them the land. But they also agreed that they would go into the land with their brothers, they would secure the land, and then they would return to the land. So why would Manasseh and Gad and Reuben want that land. The reason why they want the land is because for many of them, they conducted themselves in the cattle ranching business. They would raise cattle. And this area was perfect for grazing cattle. Apparently, living in the land of promise didn't matter all that much to them. They wanted to live in a place where they could raise cattle, but they were not aware that this would be the worst place in the world to raise their children. Because in the north, in the east, in the south, they would be literally surrounded by Israel's enemies. The area, by the way, would serve as a buffer zone. So do you see the tribal groups in the north, the middle, and the south? These are the close neighbors of Israel, but they're also the enemies of Israel. So their land is going to be a buffer zone between the Moabites and the Ammonites in the east. Living in this particular place is going to make them vulnerable to attack. It's also going to make them vulnerable to the influences, the pagan influences in those areas. There's going to be a constant solicitation to deny God, to not trust God, to not believe God, and then to accommodate, appropriate the cultural standards of their neighbors. So the boundaries were given to Reuben to the south. That's Joshua 13, we're going to see. The half-tribe of Manasseh in the north. That's verses 29 through 32. And then little Gad is stuck like a, a piece of bologna between two white bread sandwiches. And guess what? It's going to, it's going to prove disastrous. When we make our way through the Bible we're going to discover that living in this place and living under those circumstances is going to create such huge problems that they're going to literally disappear. Now, Jesus is the servant of the Lord who secures our victory. Moses secures the victory. Jesus secures our victory. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 44, 5, Though through thee we will push down our enemies. 
Through thy name we will tread them under that rise up against thee. But here's the challenge. Just like they wanted to not occupy the land of promise, they they were content to live outside the border of the land of promise. What this made me think about is so many people who I call borderline Christians. My friend Greg Laurie is fond of calling them mugwumps. He calls them mugwumps because their mug is on one side of the fence and their wump is on the other. They always seem to have one foot in the world and one foot in the community of God. They seem equally comfortable among their Christian friends. They can talk Christianese rather fluently, but they seem to operate fairly well in the world. Borderline Christians are content to be on the border. And it's a warning, I guess. Because if you've made the decision that the best place for you to raise your family is outside of the promised land, then you're going to have to deal with all of the challenges that come in living in a community that's committed to undermining your future and undermining your faith and undermining your children. It seems crazy to me that anyone would settle for anything less than their full inheritance. And the Bible has promised you a full inheritance in Christ. The psalmist said in Psalm 47, 4, He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. You see, almost invariably, you are going to be given on almost a daily basis a choice. What is it that you want? What is it that you want? What is it that you want? The invitation is going to be extended to you and you need to be able to say, I want what God wants for me. I want God's will for my life. I want God's grace and mercy in my life. I want God's faithfulness. I want to occupy Christ. I want everything that Jesus wants for me and I am content to have nothing that Jesus doesn't want for me. And now we see victory on the east side and then we're going to see victory on the west side beginning in verse 7 where it says and these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on the on this side of the Jordan he's talking about the west side from Baal God Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Sair which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions we're going to pause in just for, for just a moment so I want you to think about this Moses secures the regions east of the Jordan River Joshua secures the regions west of the Jordan 
And this summary, under the leadership of Joshua, Joshua is seen as this great victor over many enemies of the people of God. Remember, these are the enemies, and exactly what I've told you over and over, week after week, these are the people who oppose God. They oppose the plan of God. They oppose the will of God. They oppose the people of God. That's who the enemy is is. And so remember, Joshua also is a type of Christ. He secures the borders. He overcomes the enemies of God. And so in a very real sense, remember, Joshua is the savior of his people. Jesus is our savior. 31 kings are listed. Just remember, As Joshua and the children of Israel are going and defeating these enemies, that doesn't mean all of the enemies are gone. There were small villages. There were small outposts. There were groups that were unsecured. Remember, remember, as we go into this future, there are going to be opportunities for the children of Israel to possess their land and occupy their land. And there's still going to be some fights that have to be fought. But again, it becomes a type and a picture of your life in Christ. Has Jesus secured you heaven? Yes. Is there anything that you have to do to earn heaven? Of course not. Jesus has secured your salvation. He has secured heaven. Remember the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have overcome this world, overcome Satan, overcome your flesh. But all of you, if you're honest with yourself, understand that there's still little private battles that you have to fight, don't you? There's difficulties and challenges that you face. 31 kings are listed. The territory west of the Jordan isn't vast by the standards of the United States of America. When I showed you the map and I showed you from the north where the Sea of Galilee is, if you go even further north to Mount Hermon, all the way to the Dead Sea and you go all the way down to the bottom, look at the very top of the map and look at the very bottom of the map. You're looking at an area of land that's roughly just a little bit bigger than the state of New Jersey. Think of a land that's 150 miles long and about 50 miles wide. One of the things that should shock you right from the start is how did 31 different tribal groups fit into this little tiny splinter of a land? And then remember, how is it possible that so many different wicked inclinations could fit inside of our heart? How is it possible that we have to deal with so many different things in our lives? In this new description of the land that's going to take place from 7 to 24, there's no mention of the land of Goshen. It's it's left out. The wilderness area of the desert is added in verse 8. All the land was to become a part of of the tribal inheritance and distribution for the remaining eight and a half tribes. So there are eight and a half tribes left that are going to occupy that territory. And so in verse seven, it says, and these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side, the west side of the Jordan, Baal, Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount 
Halak on the ascent to Sire, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to the, their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, the Jordan plain, the slopes, the wilderness, the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and as I'm fond of saying, the Pepsi-lites. There's no Pepsi-lites there. But remember, remember, these are extensive lists of the people in and around the land. Just very briefly, the Hittites were immigrants of the people who came from what you and I would call modern Turkey. In the ancient world, it was called Anatolia. So the Hittites were immigrants from the Hittite empire into the regions of Syria in the north and the north of Syria. The Amorites was a general term of the people who occupied what was called the hill country. If you look at the geography of Israel, just, just like in our Colorado, we have an eastern slope and we have a western slope. In Israel, there's a little mountain range. It's not anything like our Rocky Mountains, but there is an eastern slope and there's a western slope. The Canaanites were broadly the descendants of Canaan. Canaan was the son of Ham who was the son of Noah. The children of Israel were descendants of the son of Shem. And so they branch off in the ancient world. The Perizzites were people in the general population who did not trace their lineage to Canaan. Their exact identity has been speculated by different scholars, but nobody really, at least from what I can tell, knows the answer. So the way that I'm going to tell you is it's my understanding that we can't say definitely who these people were other than whoever they are, they're probably not linked to the Canaanites. The Hivites were descendants of Canaan who lived in the northern regions of the land. So again, in modern times, if you go all the way to the northernmost part, past the Sea of Galilee, as you're coming into the cedars of Lebanon, it would have been in that particular area. So they occupied the northern regions of the land. The Jebusites were descendants of Canaan who lived in the hill country in and around Jerusalem. So the ancient name of the city of Jerusalem, before it was known as Jerusalem, it was called Jebus. And the people who occupied that area were called Jebusites. And so in verses 9 through 24, we see the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. And as you go through the list, they secure the area. They kill the king. They occupy the, the territory. But we would be wrong to think that they control the territory. You want to know why? Because the children of Israel, even though they have a massive population that have come into the land, they don't have... They don't have people and population to have forts and occupations in each and every one of these areas. But they have so thoroughly humiliated and defeated their enemies. Again, like I constantly say, the children of Israel are going to have to occupy these places. 
And then when you come to verse 24, the king of Tirzah, one of all of the kings, 31. Now, again, the name Tirzah means delight or delightful. It's one of the names of the five daughters of a man named Zalafad, who died in the wilderness wanderings. And the women asked if they could inherit their father's property in the promised land because usually an inheritance would only be given to sons. But because this particular person had no sons, the daughters approached Moses and asked, since their father had no children, if they could possess their father's possession. And Moses agreed. So Joshua was tasked with the assignment to defeat the occupying people, secure the land for the children of Israel, to be their savior. And so the role that Joshua plays in the battle, he is going to defeat the enemy and then secure the nation. Just like your savior. He, sec- he defeats the enemy and he secures your salvation. And when you look at these 31 different names, what I want to suggest to you is that these are 31 examples of God's faithfulness. So that when you read the king of Jericho, one, what you should say in your mind is, God is faithful. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, One, God is faithful. You see, you read these battles and you read these kings, but somehow it's easy to become disconnected from the blood and guts and gore and battle and difficulty that is taking place. One of the things that I, that I would like you to think about, and I'm not suggesting even for a minute that you're going to really do it, but you might want to just think about all of the times that God has been faithful in your life. You might be able to say, can you come up with one example of God's faithfulness in your life? Can you come up with two examples of God's faithfulness in your life? Three examples of God's faithfulness in your life. And if you, like me, live past the age of 16, into 17, and then into 27, and then into 37, and 47, and 57, and God help me, You make your way into the 60s as you're climbing towards 70 and you are counting the faithfulness of God in every year, in every decade. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 40 verse 10, I will speak of your faithfulness and your salvation. That's what this list is. It's a list of God's faithfulness. And the New Testament says that God is faithful. 
by whom you are called in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful and will not suffer or allow us to be tempted or tested above that which we are able to bear, 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful. He will establish you. He will keep you from evil, it says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3. God is faithful in his character. In 2 Timothy 2.13 it says, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful to keep his promises, it says in Hebrews 10.23. God is faithful to forgive. It says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God was faithful to send his son. God was faithful. Faithful to keep his promise. God was faithful in saving you. God was faithful in beginning the work and then continuing the work. But God's faithfulness isn't proved in dreams or wishes. God's faithfulness is proved in difficulty. And challenges, and setbacks, and sufferings, and battles. Our most important battle will be fought in the secret chambers of our heart. You see, if we really believe what the scriptures say, The Father's overcome the world. Jesus has overcome Satan. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to live inside us, to occupy our heart, to occupy our mind, to give us the resources that we need in order to do what we need to do. Oswald Chambers says, quote, Watch where Jesus went. The one dominant note in his life was to do his Father's will. His is not simply the way of wisdom or success, but the way of faithfulness. Jesus will be faithful to what God has asked him to do. Just like Joshua was faithful and Moses, the servant of the Lord, was faithful. You know, I love history. And it's interesting to me how one battle can sometimes decide the fate of a nation. It's said that Waterloo decided the future and the fate of Europe. Many of you are familiar with the Greeks as they battled against the Persians to determine what kind of world it would be on the east side of the Mediterranean and the west side of the Mediterranean Many of you know about how the Muslims emerged in the 7th century and then marched into the future and there were multiple battles against Vienna that literally changed the course of human history. When Cortez came to the new world, he burned his ships and he marched into a new world. And of course, our own civil war In the course of the battles in Europe against Hitler and the Third Reich, it could go on and on and on and on. 
There were battles in Israel in its inception in 1948 as the nation surrounded the place and threatened to kill Israel in utero. There was a battle in 1956. There was another battle in 1967. There was another battle in 1973. There was another battle in 1982. You know what all of those battles had in common? Israel's enemies lost and Israel won against what seems like overwhelming odds. You look at history and you see God's faithfulness to a group of people. But I want to invite you not to just simply look into the world's past, but to look into your past and to remind yourself of what God has done with you. How even in the most difficult of circumstances, God has, for most of you, I hope, brought you to a place of submission and obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ has brought you to a place where you've experienced his grace and mercy and his forgiveness in your life, where you've been given the assurance of heaven, the list of kings and the conquered cities, remember, become little portraits of God's faithfulness. Joshua was going to make certain that the tribes could occupy the territories. But the tribes were going to have to work once they got there. Not a single person has to work to be saved. Not one of you could save yourself. Only God, by Christ, can save you from your sin. Only God, by Christ, can secure cleansing of your sin forever. Only God in Christ can make certain that heaven is your future home. But guess what? The walk of the Christian, like I said, isn't a playground, but a battleground. So what does Jesus save us from? Well, the enemies that seek to destroy us. And in the end, the last enemy, death, will be swallowed up, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in victory. So what battles have you fought? And what battles have you won? It's interesting to me, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. You know, when you read that, it might seem like a boast at first glance, but it really is the final words of a man facing imminent execution. This is a boast of gratitude to him who called Paul into the conflict. The Lord invites Paul into the conflict to fight the fight, to wage the battle, to run the race, to finish the course. And he enabled Paul to conquer and for the most part 
to win. And so it is with you. God calls you into the battle. God calls you into the race. God calls you into faithfulness. You know what Joshua and Paul had in common? They both took God at his word. They both trusted his promise. They both relied on his presence. They both vanquished their enemies. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, you'll remember Paul said that the singular fruit of the Spirit is love, which is best seen in faithfulness. And so you read the king at Ai, Ebron, Jarmuth, Lakish, Eglon, Deber, Orma, Arad, Libna. And what I want to invite you to do is just for a moment see their bloody swords, their dented helmets their deep scars as they secure the place of promise. You know, God still rewards faithfulness above fruitfulness. No wonder Theodore Roosevelt said, it's better to be faithful than to be famous. Helen Keller wrote, and many of you know her story that she was born and then lost her vision as an infant and her sight and her hearing. She wrote, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. There may not be a giant for you to slay. There may not be a nation for you to secure. There may not be a legacy that will establish the future that only you get to do. But make no mistake about it. Jesus has made it possible for you to do exactly what he's called you to do. To be exactly what he's called you to be. And to, again, go into that future that he's assigned for you. So the next time you read the list of conquered kings, you should be able to say, the king of Jericho won, and then say, God is faithful. You should be able to read, the king of Ai, which is one, God is faithful. The king of Jerusalem one. God is faithful. The king of Hebron won. God is faithful. One battle at a time, one victory at a time, God is faithful. We're going to have communion in just a moment. So what I want you to do is just take the element that you have 
And we're going to celebrate God's faithfulness in the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me pray for you for just a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every man, each and every woman. Lord, I pray that they would be reminded of your faithfulness and then they wouldn't be content to just simply theologically think about your faithfulness, but they would assign specific acts of faithfulness and victory that you've given to their heart. And Lord, again, we're so grateful for our loving Lord Jesus who gave himself, who sacrificed himself. Lord, the Bible invites us to consider Jesus who saved us, who embraced not just death, but the most painful kind of death imaginable that he was going to pour out his life, pour out his blood. Because you're faithful. You said you would save us. You said you would send a savior. And you did exactly that. And so again, Lord, we remember that on the night that Jesus was crucified, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, the Bible says that he gave thanks and praise. He took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant this blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins and do this in remembrance of me. Lord, the children of Israel put together a list that marked your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that in that long list of faithfulness, that we would put at the top of the list the sacrifice of our Savior. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We partake once again, not just as a reminder, not just simply as a reflection, but, Lord, to declare again our love and our loyalty to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.